mic check, please. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Ducks on the Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Jennings. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. My name is John Gordon. I'll be your host. And I'm your host, Katie Burke. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America. The DU Podcast, sponsored by Purina Pro Plan, the official performance dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Purina Pro Plan, always advancing. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Ducks Unlimited podcast. I'm your host, John Gordon. And this is a episode that when I first heard that I was going to be able to host it, I got really excited about it because anybody who's listened to a lot of my podcasts in the past knows that I'm a dog guy, right? Uh, Specifically sporting dogs, sporting breeds, spaniels, retrievers. I love them all. So to have an opportunity to sit down with these two gentlemen and talk about dogs was was very intriguing to me and exciting because my guests today are Ray Voigt. He's a senior specialist. Uh, he covers retrievers, spaniels, and the herding breeds. And uh, Carl Gunzer, who's director of the sporting dog group for Purina. Guys, welcome to the DU Podcast. Thanks, John. Good to be here. Thanks for having us. And well, folks, the reason these guys are in town is what we're going to talk about first, is that they're here for the National Bird Dog Championship, which is, I mean, really what, 45 minutes from here at Ames Plantation? Maybe 30 minutes from here at National Headquarters at DU. And uh, they're here to uh, participate in a lot of this stuff and and really have uh, an influence uh, from the Purina side. And y'all sponsor quite a bit of it, right? Yeah, this is a big weekend in, in Grand Junction. So the, the Hall of Fame, the Bird Dog Hall of Fame, is in Grand Junction. Uh, there's a museum there. And uh, on Saturday, tomorrow, are the inductions in the Hall of Fame for all of the different segments there. So there's uh, spaniels, retrievers, uh, pointers, pointing breeds. Um, So every year they do the inductions for the Hall of Fame. And then on Monday starts the national championship at Ames, which is right there in Grand Junction, like you said, 45 minutes from here. That's right. And if anyone listening here that that would that loves dogs and loves the sporting dogs the hall of fame is it's for me is a must see i mean there there's more history in that place about the different breeds and the different dogs and, and really uh you know tribute to those great animals of the past so you've really got to check it out it's it's really neat there's different wings for different breeds and uh so if you're into you know spaniels there's a, a section there with you know, Springers and Cockers. There's a section with, uh, you know, NAVDA and NASTRA, National Shoot Retrieve, and and all have sections and wings where they honor different dogs. And um, then like all age bird dogs, shooting dogs. So a little of everything. Retrievers, there's a, a nice retriever wing. So yeah, it's neat. And there's lots of memorabilia from different nationals from all of the different segments. And, and I forgot to mention, you know, Ray's here. He's in early this week because there's actually a, a Springer Spaniel trial held on grounds here as well. Where is that at, Ray? Actually, just right outside of Grand Junction, um, probably five minutes from the from the Hall of Fame itself. Uh, that started on Wednesday. Uh, we'll finish up tomorrow afternoon after the inductions. So, a uh, four-day trial. They have two opens, two amateurs, and this year they actually um, included, they had Cocker trial as well. So, it you know, nice, a big event. They had big entries, and they had a banquet last night that I was at, and a really well done, and a great trial. 
what are the main differences really between what the Spaniels have to do compared to the Retrievers as far as traveling goes? Ooh, I mean, it's really two completely different skill sets. I mean, the the Spaniels are uh, of you know quartering, flushing, so they're judged a lot on on their hunt pattern, um, how well they can smell birds, how well they flush the birds, their steadiness, um, and then the retrieving part. So they're actually it'd be like a day in the field. You're out walking, the dog's quartering, you have a brace mate. Um, you have to keep keep the dog in control on your side of the course, um, flush a bird, be steady to wing and wing and shot, both for yours and the your bracemate. So if you, the bracemate puts up a bird in a shot, your dog has to honor. Well, it makes the other dog makes the retrieve. Um, so you're working in tandem there, um, and it's it's really just like you were out on a norm in the field in a normal day's pheasant hunt. And then the retrievers is. <clears throat> more like your duck hunting. So your dog is at your side. It's watching marks go down or um, or you're handling to a blind that where you know where the bird is, but the dog doesn't. And it's more about marking, uh, natural marking ability of the dog and um, their ability to navigate land and water. And, um, you know, so, so it's quite different, but it, they both are extremely fun. And uh, I really, that's one thing I've enjoyed since I started started this position is getting to get into it, see a few different venues. We're, we're trying to get Ray to get a, a Springer. Start Some, competing okay, Springer That's trials. it, Ray, man. You <laughs> got You know, you, well, for folks, if you don't know the name Ray Voigt in the world of retrievers, Ray is, is one of the most accomplished trainers on the field trial side. You know, uh, you, how many field champions did you work with, Ray? A little over 50 in the 18, or no, 14 years that I did it. So a little over 50. We had, uh, Four national champions, um, forty national finalists, and this weekend one of the retrievers getting inducted is uh, was a dog that we had, and that makes uh, six dogs that I've had the opportunity to work with that are now in the Hall of Fame. That's that's incredible, man. That you I mean just that alone, you, you got to be very proud of that. You know, going to the hall and you can walk in there and see dogs that you know very well. Oh, it, I mean, it is. It's very humbling. It's a great place. Anybody that that has that does anything with the on the sporting side or you know field trials, like Carl said, for any breed, it's you know it's a must see thing. And you walk in there and it's you see some of the dogs that you always read about when you were starting to learn the sport, and then now fortunate enough to have worked with some of them and you know a lot of the people in there, and it it's a pretty emotional place for uh, for a lot of people. Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, I'm going to head out there and check it out as well. I really, I'm looking forward to the inductions and everything and really seeing the whole, you know, pageantry and acceptance speeches and everything, you know, around it. It's a Hall of Fame, just like anything else, you know, pro football, baseball. I mean, these dogs are the top dogs of all time. So it's it's really a special place, you know. And we were, you know, starting out here talking about the performance events. You've got, basically, you've got two different categories, you know, it, field trialing and then hunt testing. Hunt testing, I know, has become, you know, a really big thing. And it's a lot younger than the field trial. You know, I mean, the field trialing really in this country started in the, you know, I believe in the early 1930s, whereas I don't think the hunt test began until the mid-1980s. Um, from a Purina standpoint, I mean, what, how important are these performance events and, and, and the performance dog to what, to what y'all do? Well, for what Ray and I do, it's it is what we do, right? It's supporting these events and um, trying to 
to help provide, you know, great nutrition for these dogs that are working hard. And so, you know, Purina, kind of the philosophy of Purina is people and pets are better together. And we try and promote things that um, cause people to do something with their dogs. So whether it's, um, you know, a confirmation dog show, if that's what you're into, or a um, uh, agility event, or in our case, you know, sporting dog events, you know, retrievers, spaniels, pointing breeds, herding breeds. Um, so uh, it's been great. You know, the field trials are a great venue and, um, you know, they're kind of the the ultimate test for the dog, but they've gotten so difficult that it's hard for, you know, a lot of average people to train their own dog to compete. You know, if, if you're competing against people that are, are, you know, training in the north in the in the summer and they go south for the winter and, and have the best grounds and, you know, good training and the best genetics, um, it's hard for an average guy to go compete. It can be done. There's lots of great amateurs that train their own dogs, but it takes uh, time and generally money to do it. Um, where the hunt tests have been created, so they're judged against a standard that gives... Um, a person a little more of an ability to do something with a dog, train to a high level, but not have to just try and and beat the other hundred dogs at the event that day. You know, you can go have fun with the dog and and um, really enjoy the dog. And and there's lots of crossover. I've seen a lot of people that start in the hunt test program that then start field trialing or um, vice versa. There's people that you know run trials and then say, you know what, I'm going to put a, a hunt test title on my dog or run the hunt test or try and qualify for the Master National or um, run the Super Retriever Series. So um, there's now quite a few different testing venues for dogs. There's really only one field trial venue. That's the AKC field trial. Um, so if you really hear the word field champion, that is specific to an AKC field trial title. Um, but there's lots of master hunters, grand hunting retriever champions, SRS champions, and different ways that you can earn titles that are not competitive one dog against the next. Exactly, exactly. That <clears throat> For folks that actually don't know, that's it. The field trial, you got 100 dogs pitted against each other or more. And what is it? There's basically three places that, that actually score points. And that's it, you know, and you've got a winner. Four, but and, yeah, 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 four, one, two, right, three, so. four, yeah. Yep. And that's it. And that's yes. only people to get points in the entire trial. So it's a, it's got to be pretty intense. I mean, Ray, you've been at the line at, at many of them. The, it's got to be a fine line between winning and losing. Oh, definitely. I mean, the the competition and the, the I think the the dogs, the genetics, the the training um, techniques have evolved so much that the you know. Even as less 10, 15 years ago, you know, you'd go and there was, you know, maybe a handful or 20 dogs that you knew really had a shot. And now it's um, almost all of them are capable of winning, you know, given the right circumstances. So the margin for error is extremely low from from you know, first to fourth and even just finishing without a placement. I mean, that that's the the gap has is really small. You know, and it's it's hard it's hard to do and hard to compete consistently. And right, and for a dog to be a field champion, they have to win an event. There's got, there's got to be a lot of great dogs in history who never won, so they never got the title. Yeah, you know, a, a win in points, so a win and a total of ten points for a field champion or fifteen for the amateur field champion. And uh, you know, we used to uh, Ray and I used to pre-national together all the time when he worked for Mike and and Mike uh, Lardy, he, uh, he would equate the test and, and the whole thing to like an arms race. He's like, you know, the, the dogs get better and then the judges get tougher and make it harder. And then the, the dogs get better and everything just kept elevating, you know, and, uh, 
the whole the whole thing just got more and more challenging. Exactly, it's it's the ultimate level uh, with retrievers. I mean, I've never run field trials, just only hunt tests. But you got a lot of dogs that are really skilled at the hunt test level. It just, I think the it seems to me the real separator is the ability to mark birds at extreme distances. It seems like the field trial dogs are just geared for that particular skill in, in a way that the hunt test dog can't match. Well, I think there's a lot of hunt. I mean, a lot of it is the venue that you choose to play with the dog. So there are there are a lot of hunt test dogs that I think, um, if they had been trained specifically for field trials, they could they certainly have the genetics and the the desire to to have played that game. I mean, what do you think the main differences are? Does a lot of it just depend on how which path was chosen for the dog in the first place? Well, I think part of it the path. Um, I mean, there is some difference. Some of the the genetics and the breeding are different from field trial to hunt test. But a lot of the there's always a myth that the field trial dogs are too high strung. They're not, you know, they're just living in kennel. All they do is run field trials, and I think that's completely wrong. I mean, just about every dog that we that I've ever trained was a house dog. Um, a lot of them went hunting. They did the things that everybody always used to say field trial dogs couldn't do. And if you look through a lot of pedigrees, most of the dogs running hunt tests are have field trial backgrounds. Exactly. They, you know, have field trial parents or grandparents. And so I think a lot of it is the um, is the path that people chose or choose. And there are some examples where there may be some dogs that are running that just weren't going to be able to to be a high caliber field trial dog and they're more suited for the hunt test game, which is the shorter distances. And, you know, it does take a, a dog with a something deep down to look out there across the lake and make a 300 yard swim um, that not just not every dog has. So, um, you know, so all those things come into play, but th- there's a lot of them that could be competitive if, if, you know, people took that route. And I, there have been some dogs in history, I, I believe, who, who excelled at both. But I think they were field trial dogs first and then they transitioned into hunt tests. I think it'd be pretty tough to go the other way. It's it's easier to go from field trials to hunt tests than from hunt tests to field trials just because of, you know, ingrained distances. And um, really a lot of it to me is working with you on the line. You know, a field trial dog is really taught to move with you on the line to look at, you know, look from this gun to that gun. You know, the guns, for those that, that don't know, the gunners at a field trial are in white. So they're visible. You can pick them out. And that, that some people might say is an advantage, but um, it can also make it harder. You know, when you have one that's longer and it's standing out in white and then there's the short bird is retired, there's nothing for the dog to see or vice versa. Um, so, you know, those the field trial dogs are really taught a lot of working with you online, from moving from one gun to the next, picking them out, where the hunt test dogs are more either swing with the gun or cue in on the sound because there's generally a sound given before the bird is thrown, whether it's a duck call or a, a pop or gun or something. So, so that's one big difference, but they can all, a field trial dog can learn to swing with a gun or move, swing their head to a, a sound and a hunt test dog can learn to pick out white coats and, and work with a they just need to be trained. Sure, sure. And I would include, encourage anybody, listeners out there, you can see all of this, you know, online. You, you can see field trials and hunt tests and see the differences in it. A lot of it's distance. You know, the field trials, you're, you're talking several hundred yards on a lot of the marks and blinds. And then it's just, it's kept within, usually within 150 or so in most of the hunt tests I've been to. It used to be a 100-yard standard, and I think they extended that. Yes, I believe it's, I think, 150 now. And in the HRC, um, I think it can even be up to 175. 
I got you. And once again, folks, for y'all don't know, in the hunt test game, there's mainly two main clubs, the HRC, which uh, is run by the UKC club, and then the AKC. So you've got two different title sets, you know, HRCA Hunting Retriever Champion as being the top title. Uh, well, Grand Hunting Retriever Champion yeah, <clears throat> on the uh, HRC side and the AKC, the Master Hunter, and then Master National Retriever. So the national events have become a big deal, and I know y'all are, you know, heavily involved. Oh, the the uh, Master National last year down in Thomasville, Georgia, had, I think, 1,220 entries. That's crazy, Which was man. the largest field event in AKC history. And the grand, the two grands last the the HRC, the hunting retriever club has a spring grand and a fall grand, and they were both in I believe entries in the nine hundred. So I would be the spring grand this year is is down in Georgia, and I would um, not be surprised to see it hit a thousand for the first time. Man, that that from when the time when I was just a kid coming out of college and, and got involved with my first club, where we may have had. Man, I don't think we hit a hundred dogs in master most of the time on, on our test. To now, to where every you know event is is just you can't get in. Yeah, it's now, just packed out. Now they've limited the entries because it became so popular. The clubs didn't have the grounds or the help to support that many dogs running in one one stake. So they limit the master entries and. There's multiple tests every weekend. Now they're doing tests midweek to try to accommodate because some of those tests will fill up in a matter of less than minutes. You know, I mean, it's the entries open at a certain time and it's a lot of them are, some of them have been full in, you know, 45 seconds. Exactly. I, you see, you got to have a gift yeah. just about to how to get in to a test these days. Yeah, they the got master. strategies. All the, the pros yeah. all have a strategy. <laughs> yeah. and, of how to yeah, get when in. to click. Yeah. yeah I mean, if you have 60, you know, if, if it's limited to 66 dogs and one person has 20 that they're trying to get in, that, you know, it's it makes it interesting. And, you know, I know that on the master national side of things, there's talk about, uh, you know, making it harder to get in because there's so many dogs qualified, right? That they're talking about having a qualifying event to qualify for the Master National versus just the test, uh, getting a dog in. So it just shows you the growth of this has just been exploded in the last five years. Yeah, I, th I think the the qualifying event kind of got sh voted down last year. Um, but there's they've had several proposals from, you know, like you said, the, the qualifying event. They've talked about splitting it geographically, east and west, and actually hosting two to try to lower the numbers. Um, you know, they're kicking around some different ideas, and I don't, I don't think anything at this point has been settled. But it's really hard to find grounds that can host not only that number of, you know, we had nine flights last fall down in Georgia. So to have grounds that have nine separate areas that you can basically do a whole master within driving distance of each other, there's not many places in the country that can do that. And logistically, hotels, restaurants, that amount, that influx of people that come in for those, you know, the judges were here for almost three weeks last year or were there for almost three weeks. So places with the infrastructure to host that amount of people coming in and the grounds are, you know, very few. That's a that's a great point. That especially with retrievers, well, with spaniels, bird dogs, all of it, it, it takes a lot of land to be able to really test a dog and its abilities. It, it, it and it's the right ground, especially from the retriever side. Once again, folks, y'all can look this up. But the the requirements of dogs to take straight lines and fight factors, which becomes points. Get on the point, not on the point, off, you know, on the land, whatever. That that's a that's a special pond that has to be built for that. And and you know, uh, 
there's the same issue with the with the pointing breed trials. You know, like this national here going on at Ames. I'm not sure the total number of acres here at Ames, but you know they they run a three hour brace, right. one, a three hour brace in the morning, three hour in the afternoon. So those dogs are on the ground for three hours. They cover a lot of ground. Um, now that's maybe there's not many or any trials other than this that are a three hour brace, but there's lots of one hour and then they can have callbacks for you know hour and a half or two and um, it takes a big piece of property to run a horseback all-age bird dog or a shooting dog, you know, on a course. And uh, it's hard, you know, it's getting more and more difficult to do that on public properties. So, um, you know, thankfully there's a lot of landowners that, you know, have an interest in uh, bird dogs and or retrievers, both that develop properties, but um, it is, it, it's a challenge. Exactly, exactly. And that another you bring up a great point there, Carl, about we were talking about nutrition and everything before. These these pointing dogs, the setters, English pointers, English setters, you know, different breeds. But those dogs in a three-hour brace are – their stamina is tested to the absolute maximum, right? And if they don't have the fuel inside of them to get through it, they're just going to – it's not – they're not going to make it. Yeah, conditioning is a huge part in, in the bird dog world. I think – you know, it's it's interesting. We've seen conditioning, um, and really, you know, um, Mike and Ray, uh, with the help of you know Dr. Janelle and others, really sort of brought conditioning, I'd say, to the forefront of retriever training, and and realized that that could be a competitive advantage. In the bird dog world, it's always been known that conditioning is a big part because once they're hot and you know breathing too much through their mouth and just get they just can't smell as well anymore. So. Um, so, you know, we always sort of say uh, it's sort of a three-period, three-sided pyramid, um, you know, genetics, training, and nutrition. It, it takes all of those things. And, you know, genetically, some dogs have, are going to be smoother runners, are going to be built better to run. Um, so, I think genetics is a huge part. Training is a huge part. Um, and conditioning. And then nutrition is the third piece is that they have to have the calories and a high-fat diet um, to be able to run and still perform for that amount of time. Just like an athlete, I remember Michael Phelps talking about the fact that he had to consume upwards of 10,000 calories a day when he was in training, right? Otherwise, he he would have been a stick man. He, he couldn't, you know, he couldn't compete at the highest level without the nutritional standpoint. And that's, you know, Perina's done a fantastic job, especially in the pro plan brand, you know, which started in the 80s. And now I was just looking at the site and all the different types of formulas that y'all have, it, it's just unbelievable. And the way you've really been able to pinpoint specific needs for dogs is, is unbelievable. Yeah. And, you know, in, in the, in sort of the general population pet world, one of the biggest problems is obesity. I mean, 60% of the dogs that walk into a, a veterinary practice are probably obese. Uh, you get into the sporting world, especially the, the bird dog world, that's not a problem. I mean, these dogs run right. hard enough and they burn enough calories. You have the opposite problem. You need a, a high fat, high protein diet um, just to help the dogs perform. They got to get the calories, and that's um, so Purina or so Proplan and Purina have various formulas with different caloric densities. So if you if you're going to run uh, a bird dog like we're talking about, you know, you probably want a, a 30, 20 higher protein and fat formula with more calories. Um, if you know it's a a spade dog that's an occasional weekend hunter, you know, you're probably better off on a, uh, adult maintenance type formula. Um, but you know, the, the real way to look at it is, you know, you look at the body condition of the dog and you know, it should be, there's a, there's a body condition score chart and you can look at that and kind of determine where your dog 
fits into it. And then you help, then you choose your formula based on the body weight of the dog and, and what they're expected to do. What part of, do allergies play into it? Because I know a lot of dogs have got issues with different things, right? They, they really can't tolerate this or that and the other. So I'm not going to say that's a um, not a correct notion, but dogs are much more likely to be allergic to uh, environmental things than they are a food protein or or um, you know you always hear about corn, wheat, and soy and those things, and uh, certainly dogs can be allergic to those. Um, the they're much more likely to be allergic to a protein than a carbohydrate. So more often it's you know beef or chicken or salmon or whatever it is, protein source that they're allergic to than it is the carbohydrate. But they can be allergic to any of those. Um, more likely than any of those is probably just like a lot of us. I mean, if you think about the number of people that you know that have a food allergy versus uh, an environmental allergy like um, hay fever or something like that. Dust, right? Yeah, dust, right? And it's the same for the dogs. They're much more likely to have an environmental allergy. But there's different foods that either... Um, are limited ingredient formulas. Um, there's a hypoallergenic f- formula, so you can really figure out if it truly is a food allergy. So you feed a dog this this hypoallergenic formula and see if the dog is still itching or having any problems. If it is, then it's you, you kind of know it's an environmental allergy. And it takes um, there's some tests that can be done, but really it's it's difficult to diagnose allergies in dogs and skin conditions. It really is kind of a, a trial and error, and, and people really need to to write down, you know, when it's happening, what's happening, what they're seeing for symptoms, and then try to identify commonalities like, oh, okay, wait a minute, it's every, uh, you know, it's every September, he seems to itch a lot. Well, what's what's happening in September? Well, you know, trees are pollinating or whatever that is, or maybe it's a grass pollen in the spring or so. Um, it's tough. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, folks, we're going to take a little break right there and uh, stay tuned. We'll be back pretty soon with the Ducks Unlimited podcast. Stay tuned to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, sponsored by Purina Pro Plan, after these messages. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Ducks Unlimited podcast. My guests today are two of the top sporting dog nutrition guys in the country, and they, and they both work for Purina. We've got Carl Gunzer and Ray Voigt. Ray, this question is for you. We were just talking about you know, performance dogs and what kind of nutritional needs they have from a trainer standpoint. Did y'all have a specific regimen that you built up to prior to a trial or was it just you you had a pretty regular maintenance program the entire deal? How did, how did that work? Um, nutritionally, we didn't tend to change things a lot before trials. I mean, we wanted to kind of practice the same way you play. So it wasn't like they would get different amounts or things like that. They were, um, you know, all the dogs were a little different. So some well, some might be on three cups, some might be on four cups. I never really had to worry about the food doing its job. Water balance was a big issue, you know, was a big concern. You wanted to make sure the dogs were well hydrated, uh, you know, at events, if it was hot out, things like that. Um, but, you know, from a, from a feeding standpoint, things didn't didn't really change from day to day to weekends to events. Um, you know, if you knew you were going into a cold weather national, maybe you would uh, try to have the have a couple extra pounds on the dog and have a better coat on them versus going into a warm weather national where you're going to have them a little thinner and um, and not not want that heavy undercoat. You know, things like that. But f- from a feeding standpoint, things pretty 
pretty well stay the same based on what the, that dog needed day to day. I got you. I got you. And well, y'all had a very good feel, your finger on the pulse of what they needed, uh, working with those dogs every single day on their nutritional needs. I'm sure it's, uh, you know, from a trainer standpoint, that's got to be a real concern. Oh, I mean, when it comes to crunch time, that's the last thing you want to worry about is, uh, you know, are they going to run out of gas because they don't have the proper nutrition? Are they, are they running too much and we can't keep weight on them anymore? I mean, you know, like Carl mentioned earlier about as they get warmer, they don't smell as good. Um, so the conditioning part of it, and I mean, there's so, there's so many, so many things that go into it, but knowing that you have a good quality food that they're going to thrive on is, uh, was always nice to have in the back of your head. You didn't have to worry about that. And then you could do all the other things that would try to give you that little bit of advantage, you know, with the hydration and the conditioning and those sorts of things. Purina is the dominant brand in in the performance sporting dog world. Which, I mean, that's the truth. Am I correct? Well, you know, ProPlan, more champion dogs, you know, feed ProPlan than any other formula. There's, there's lots of great formulas around. Um, I think ProPlan has has supported um, the events and segments, whether it's bird dogs, retrievers for a long time. And I think people have just like, you know, Ray and others and and myself, before I came to work for Purina, we realized it was a good food. The company um, helped support the industry that we loved and there really was no better option. So I think you'll see the majority of people that compete our feeding pro plan. Um, I think, you know, the bird dog national here in a couple of days, I'm not sure exactly the number, but we were looking at it. And I think out of 30 ish dogs, and there might be a couple of scratches, but like 28 or 29 of the 30 um, feed pro plan. So it's pretty overwhelming. The support. You know? Well, as they say, the proof's in the pudding yeah, there. Yeah. You've got 28 dogs out of 29 on, on pro right. plan. It's uh that, that, that speaks for itself. Right. From a science standpoint, how, from R&D, I know Purina has got to spend uh, an incredible amount of time and resources developing these foods. I mean, what, let's just, like pro plan performance, the 30-20, how long did it take y'all to really come up with the magic formula for that? You know, that's a good question. And that happened, um, you know, before I was with the company. Um, but I know, you know, Dr. Arlie Reynolds um, from Alaska um, played a big part in creating developing that formula. And Arlie was a, a sled dog, um, a musher, sled dog racer. I think he won three world champion sprint races, I think, and and helped condition dogs for a bunch of others. Um, you know, one of the things I love about Purina is, is the science. You know, we have over 500 um, veterinarians, scientists, researchers that are, are working and trying to create new formulas and the best we can for the dogs. I mean, I know, well, Last time I looked, we had five board-certified nutritionists working for Purina. That's a pretty overwhelming number. I don't know how many is in the country, but I, I'm pretty sure that um, you know there's a lot of manufacturers and dog food companies out there that don't have any board-certified nutritionists working for their company. Um, so we take the science seriously, and I think that's one of the things that is exciting about Purina is it's always about what's the next thing, what's what can we create or do to help dogs and cats do better you know we're just always trying to improve our nutrition that's right <laughs> uh, folks for your cat lovers out there I, try, I forget about cats sometimes but that, that's important too right i mean they people people love their cats some, and, some and would they, say that's yeah. important <laughs> <laughs> well we're all sporting dog guys right, right. i mean it's it it it's just what we love. So we just, but the cats are important too, you know, and y'all do a great job with that as well. Y'all have got a tremendous amount of, of different formulas for them too. That's right. 
you know, Purina has been around a long time. I did not realize that the company was was started, you know, in the late 1800s, pretty much. So you're talking about a brand that's been around now for over 125 years. Yeah, I think I think this year's 130th anniversary or something like that. It's I'm within a year, one way or the other. Yeah. Pretty incredible. That is incredible. And the amount of, of 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 pets and sporting dogs and cats and just everything that Purina has fed over the over the decades. It's in the multi-millions. It's incredible. Yeah. And you know, when the company started, you know, it was uh, you know, Ralston, you know, was started by uh William Danforth and then you know, it had been bought and sold a few times over the years, but um, has really always remained true to the focus of pet nutrition. You know, we used to have cereals and, and formulas and things for humans, um, and a few companies were bought and sold over the years, but really it's has always, since the 30s, the focus has been uh, pet food. Exactly, exactly. It's really one of the iconic brands. I mean, you say the word Purina. And everybody knows exactly what you're talking about. There's no mystery there that right. that y'all are into to the pet food business. And it's uh, yeah, what a, what a brand. It's been great. I got a question for you, Ray, that I think a lot of listeners would be interested in. People always ask me stuff like, okay, when you're you know you're looking for a new dog, a new hunting companion, hunt test dog, field trial dog, whatever. What are you really looking for in a litter of puppies? Is it the puppy themselves, or you just or or is it the parents that you're really focusing on? <clears throat> the genetics, are, I think, are the the big part. You find um, you find parents or, ge- or genetics that you like. Um, I like to have an idea of what those parents are like. So whether I've had an opportunity to see them myself or talk to people, the owners or the trainers, and find out what they're like, um, not only from a performance standpoint, but I really like to focus on temperament and what they're like to live with. You know, I don't like those dogs, high-strung dogs that are bouncing off the wall and pacing back and forth and barking as much as anybody. So I want to know that the that the, both the parents and the, the lineage there has has good temperaments. They're, they're easy to live with and they can perform. And I think, um, so I'm going to pick that litter based on that. And then maybe an individual puppy, if you go look at them, one of them catches your eye, one of them follows you around quicker or, or has certain little temperament traits at seven weeks or eight weeks that you that kind of you like, then I would go with that. But I don't think, you know, they can change, they're going to change a lot from eight weeks to eight years. So just because one of them wanted to retrieve a pigeon wing a little bit quicker at eight weeks doesn't mean that that's going to be the first one to do everything, you know? So, you know, but you might like the, um, depending on the breed, you, you know, spaniel or bird dog, maybe you'll, the, some of the markings might catch your eye or I've heard some people in the spaniel world say they like to find one that has similar markings to the, to the father. If the, you know, you have a really strong sire, they're going to pick the one that has similar markings to to that dog, um, you know, obviously in the retriever world, you you know, black, yellow, chocolate. So <laughs> yeah. you're gonna you're gonna kind of go with um, kind of find the color you want, and then the genetics, and and you know, I have little things that I look for. You know, I like to see the ones that'll follow you around, that are you know, seem like they want to be with you. Obviously, you want them to look healthy. You know, eyes are clear, their skin's clear. They're not, you know too skinny when they're little puppies, you know, things like that, you know, bouncing around. And But it's hard because sometimes you show up right after they eat, they're all going to be sleeping. Right. You know, That's, so there's only so many, there's only so many things you can do. So I'm going to look for the genetics I want and the parents that have the traits that I like first and foremost. And that's what I've always told people. You just really have got to figure out what you want first, right? If you, some people, some people I know like that 
breathing fire dog. I personally don't, but uh, there's there's some hunters I know for sure that do. Guys are retrieving, you know, dogs, maybe a guide dog or whatever is retrieving a lot of birds over the course of a season. They want one that's, you know, that's really ripping it. But you also, you got to sit in a blind with them for a lot of hours too. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, those ones that are, you know, and that's not a big thing, you know, are the um, vocal, you know, who wants to sit in a boat or a blind with a dog that's whining or barking? No kidding. You know, so making sure, you know, that goes along with the temperament of the parents and are, are they vocal dogs of the, you know, all that sort of stuff. I also, one more thing to add is having a reputable breeder. Um, you know, there's so many things that people can, that breeders, good breeders do with the puppies to get them socialized, to expose them to different things, to get them used to, um, you know, personally, I got my puppy from... Um, I mean, they're half housebroken before you get them because they're raised in the house and they're taken outside after they eat and they start to learn to go in and out and they spend time outside. They've been introduced to water. They've been introduced to feathers. You know, so there's a big difference between a puppy coming from a place like that and one that's just been out in a concrete kennel for seven weeks. You know, so I'd like to know a little bit of how they're being raised and that the people have done it before. And, you know, that, that also plays a part. Well, you've got a puppy, am I correct? I guess she's not a puppy, and she's three now. So, I, you know, I'll keep calling her a puppy, but no, she, <laughs> okay, she's three. Well, yep. Not quite a puppy then, but, you know, you've had experience with it. And from the Purina standpoint, Carl, I know that's a, been a, a big focus for Purina over the years is is the different nutritional requirements for puppies. Yeah, and, you know, it's really important to feed uh, a puppy formula or an all-life-stage formula to a puppy. Um, you know, as they're developing, you know, proper calcium and phosphorus ratios are important, as well as high levels of, you know, EPA, DHA, and different nutrients that really help for development of eyes, brains, all that stuff. Um, you know, they need a complete and balanced formula while they're growing. And that's important, right? I mean, you wouldn't want to feed your puppy an adult dog food, correct? No, that, that's right. Exactly. Now, an all-life stage formula is complete and balanced for puppies and adults. So if you had like that Sport 3020 is an adult, is an all-life stage. So that's fine. But like, uh, you know, complete essentials are one of the maintenance formulas that would not be appropriate. And it has to be identified on the bag. So if you see, if you're going to find a bag of food and it says adult on it, that is specifically formulated for dogs over the age of one, where like Carl said, the all-life stages can be from, you know, weaning to to retirement or, you know, so, you know, that's important. I mean, I'm, I know I'd like to do, and like with a Labrador or a Retriever, if I'm doing a puppy food, I like to do a large breed puppy versus a regular, just to help with that, slow down that growth so they don't, so they're, they're basically their bones aren't growing faster than their ligaments. Right. You know, in my personal dog, uh, he had, he was growing so fast and, and he had a little, he, well, he developed a, a limp and, you know, it was, it was all just related to that, you know, just growth plate stuff that was just going too fast. And you, so it all comes into play that, you know, that's really important. But so it, one year, 12 months, that's the, that's really the standard, uh, that's sort of typical. for adult and puppies. Yes. Yeah. That's sort of the typical large, you know, large breeds can take a little longer to, to reach full, you know, maturity and all that, but that's sort of, uh, kind of a general standard. Uh, yeah. I've always heard yep. age of two, right. For most yes. large breeds, yep. that's when they're that's physically right. developed. Yep. <laughs> not very mentally developed sometimes, but right. it all depends on the dog, man. I, you know, we've all seen them. You've seen these little fem phenom dogs at a very young age who are just capable of such complex things. And then some other dogs didn't really come on until they were until they were older. That's you right. know? So don't give up on a dog. That's kind of one of the things I think too, is that they, they mature at different rates. Yeah. And and one one last thing I want to add is, is you know, it used to be the thought that you wanted, you know, a, a fat, healthy puppy. Well, fat and healthy in a puppy are not the same. 
uh, they really should be lean, especially when they're growing and and working. You know, at uh, sixteen weeks, you know, six months, all that. You don't want an overweight puppy. Um, you know, it's really hard as those, you know, joints and bones are growing and developing, uh, carrying too much weight is not a good thing. So I think it's really important to keep puppies lean. Puppies and, and dogs. That's maybe one of the biggest thing I've seen over the years. And you talk, I think you touched on it earlier, Carl, is that uh, there's a lot of dogs out there that they're obese. You know, they don't need to weigh 95 pounds. They really need to weigh 70 pounds and they're just, they're being overfed. Yeah. And you know, what's funny is you don't think of it. You think of a dog, oh, well, it's just five pounds heavy. Well, five pounds, maybe 10%, you know, and, and being 10% overweight is, is reasonably significant. You know what I mean? And if it's 10 pounds, well, then it's, it's 20% overweight. So, um, you know, it depends of course on the size, but, um, it's not, uh, you know, they don't have to be 30 pounds overweight to be overweight. Right. And it's from a sporting dog's perspective, it's got to be tough on their joints to, yes. be, to have carried too much weight. You know, it, it, it's rough. Here's another question I'm going to throw at you, Ray, that uh, people always debate about. Male or female? Uh, completely personal preference. Exactly. But it, I, we've, all, we've all seen incredible dogs on both sides. But it's just, and your experience in your career... If you just if you had to pick one, is it the male dog that you would think that I guess in the in like national champions and everything like that, the males have dominated. Like this national bird dog trial, there's all it's all males. Is that right? That's correct. There's not wow. a female in the in the wow. in the bunch. I looked at the running order yesterday. Not the running order yet, but the the dogs are qualified. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're all males. I'll be darned. So, but I, there, we've all seen some incredible. Like my own Mike's dog Lottie was man one of the best retrievers I ever saw in my life. I think the national. Open championship for the retrievers this year was almost 50-50, male to female. You know, so I think you see a lot more even in the retriever world these days. I mean, that used to be the old school thinking was you needed a big, tough, strong male that was going to, you know, go through cover and go in cold water. And the way that the, the breeding has gone and the training has gone, that's just, you don't have to, if that's the style you like, great, but you don't have to have that to be competitive. Um, I mean, there's a lot of small, like Lottie, like you just mentioned, some small, um, you know, Baby was a dog that we trained that got in the Hall of Fame last year. She was a small, petite dog. And, you know, they don't have to be that big, burly anymore. And in fact, those dogs nowadays, and with the length and the distances that they're having to run and the repetition, those bigger, burly dogs are the ones that break tend to break down faster physically. So, I mean, these dogs are putting on miles daily. I mean, they are basically... Endurance sprinters is what it comes down to. So a little bit of that smaller, leaner build, a lot of them will last a little bit longer. So I, personally, I own a female, but I, I'm not opposed to any of it. I mean, I, I, I like good dogs. <laughs> so, exactly. Good. But, uh, but male or female really is comes down to what you prefer. You know, some people just don't want a female that's going to come into season. And you live in, you know, you, you have multiple dogs, it's hard to have both because then you have one female that comes in season and then you have to board it or have a place for it. Or in our case, like we have, we live in town now and we have diapers that she has to wear when she's in season because I don't, she, I don't even have an outside kennel. She lives in the house 24 seven. So, you know, there's some things that easier to have a male, you know, from that standpoint with, with cycles and such, you in the middle of duck season and your dog comes in season. What do you, you know, you don't want yeah, them in the water and around dogs, other dogs. Right, you know, drives so, those males nuts. Same yeah. with the testing and trialing, right? I mean, they've got to be scratched. The Correct. They have to be scratched. So, you know, so I know some people that prefer males for that reason. Um, some people like to do litters and they prefer females, you know, so they can have, have litters and 
pass along their genetics that they like. So it really comes down to what fits your lifestyle and what you like. Yeah, I think there was a real trend when I was younger, maybe in my 20s or so. I saw a lot of really big dogs, especially on the Labrador side. You know, a guy was always talking about, man, my dog weighs 105 pounds. And it's like, I, I just, and I've seen the trend go in the other direction. I've seen smaller dogs nowadays. People realize that uh, 100-pound dogs don't fit well into boats. 100-pound yeah. dogs don't fit well in anywhere. So they, they just really, I think that that mentality has changed over the years. And I, I think it's better for it, you know. And I've seen some really good big dogs, but I think the trend now is going back to more of the breed standard of, of, of that size. As far as nutrition goes, there's a couple of key things that people are really concerned about. I know, and, and, and I think good nutrition plays a huge part in it. And one of them is longevity. Am I correct about that, Carl? I mean, can you extend the dog's life basically by feeding it the proper food? You know, there was um, a lifespan study done by Purina. I'm trying to remember the when that was. Right, it was the 80s, I think, or I can't remember how long it was. It's been a while. But um, the the study basically showed that. Dogs um, that were kept leaner, you know, fed lean, um, they had, they lived longer lives, but also lived healthier. So that, that delayed the onset of osteoarthritis and, and different joint diseases, degenerative joint diseases. So, um, so the food helps, feeding them to the right um, body condition helps. And just what you said, you know, um, 20 or 30 years ago, you know, if you looked at the average age of dogs competing at the national, I think it was around six years old. That has gradually gotten older and older now, you know, in, uh, I should say, Retriever National. Now, Ray, do you remember what it was recently? It was like, it's pushing seven years. I mean, and it's not uncommon to have 11-year-old dogs running at the National Retriever Championship, where 30 years ago, that was almost that was unheard, unheard of. of. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But that, those days, it seemed like once a dog hit about eight or nine, it was pretty well done. Yep. And I think that's a lot of, that's been improvements in nutrition and people understanding nutrition as well. Yeah. And and conditioning and, you know, and a little bit the smaller dog thing, what you were talking about, those you know, the, the really big retrievers of the, you know, 80s and 90s, that has trended the other way. And I think those dogs are, are performing a lot longer. And we also have more, we have veterinarians now that are a lot more adept at soft tissue injury, where kind of the old school thought was it has to, if the dog's lame, it has to be a bone or a joint and give them a Rimadil and run them tomorrow. You know, so the sports medicine aspect of taking care of the dogs has also become much more... Um, advanced, you know, so um, like Carl mentioned, Dr. Janelle earlier, Dr. Janelle Pell, she has done a ton to advance the um, the information that's out there for people, the preventative steps, the the warming up, the cooling down, the stretching, and all things that help prevent and diagnosing soft tissue injury, which 10 years, 15 years ago, people didn't really talk about. So, you know, that's also helped these dogs run a lot longer and a lot at, at a older ages. And uh, just to back up on that life study, to back up one second, when you talked about the longevity, it didn't just increase it by a few weeks or a few months. It increased their life by years. Yeah. I think it was 1.8 years, I believe, or just about two years. Yep. So, you know, I mean, that's a huge difference. So when, when people say, oh, well, he's hungry or he likes to eat, that's great. But do you want another couple of years with your pet or do you want them to be fat because they got to eat a couple extra cups of food a couple you know so uh, that's a great that, point that's that a great point think about yeah. that you know people listening out there think about it 
You know, if you, <laughs> you, know, you may be looking at your fat dog right now and think about the fact that you might be cutting his life short. Yep. I and mean, that's a huge thing because we all love those dogs you know, to pieces. And man, it's it's, an, it's a blow yeah. when you lose one, right? Yeah. I mean, it just, it, it really hurts you, you know, to your core, you know, to lose one of your dogs. And that's part of it. But I really think that I've seen some huge advances in the nutritional side of it and, and, the, and the knowledge of it. And like I said, of people really understanding that this is, this is the best way to have your dog around, you know, substantially longer. As far as the future... Do y'all see any real trends that are coming down the line uh, that are going to be worked into the pet food industry that are really exciting? I think a lot of a lot of the latest research is really kind of focused around the the gut microbiome, um, probiotics, and healthy a healthy gut in the dogs. And I think you're seeing that in human medicine and and a lot of that's one of the great things about. Purina being owned by Nestle is that we can take some of those advances that we're creating in human medicine, whether it's infant formulas or um, senior formulas, and we can use a lot of that same research to try and develop it for dogs. And um, I think, you know, I think the probiotics, the gut microbiome, um, a little bit of brain health, you know, there's a lot of nutritional, there's a lot of nutritional aspects to brain health, whether it's the way, um, you know, the dog is assimilating fats in their brain, you know, uh, medium chain triglycerides are easily digestible in an older dog's brain and helps, um, you know, helps mental acuteness and all that in older dogs. So a lot of those discoveries, even things like epilepsy and other things, uh, there's a nutritional component to treating some of those diseases. And I think that's probably a lot of where things are focused right now. You know, I'd say brain health and gut health and, and affecting those with diet. And that's exciting. Once again, that's going to lead, I think, to more longevity, right? I think that's a yeah. real goal. Yeah. And you're just seeing dogs live longer and longer, pets living longer and longer all the way across the board. And Ray, here's a good question for you as well. From from a training standpoint, a lot of folks out there that, you know, they've got they got one dog, you know, they, they hunt with the dog. Is it better to train more consistently, you think, like short periods of time every day or more intense training sessions three days a week that are covering more things what I, it, it there's two schools of thought of that i've always heard that you know that if you you know just like from training for people is just if you if you did three rounds of boxing every single day versus seven eight rounds of boxing three days a week you were you were far farther ahead in the long run personally i'd probably take the more more days and less work you know the the i think if you're trying to jam three or four lessons or five lessons into one one day, I don't know that they're going to, uh, what's the right word? Retain. Uh, retain that, retain as well as if, you know, they learn this lesson on Monday, this lesson on Tuesday, this lesson on Wednesday, trying to cram everything together, I think, you know, and a lot of times teaching, we try to teach them kind of in themes so the things go together. So if I'm trying to reach from one end of training to the other all in one day, I don't think they're going to retain that where I can build upon each lesson day to day. So if I saw something on Monday that they maybe struggled with, you know, we're working on basic obedience and they didn't want to sit the greatest. Okay, well, guess what? I'm going to work on that until I get that foundation down. So I'm not going to do teach them how to sit, teach them how to heal, teach them how to come here, all those things at once. How is the dog going to make sense of that? I want them to pick to learn one thing at a time, and then then we're going to build them all together. But from a teaching learning standpoint, I think they'll I think they can comprehend better learning one thing each day. And also physically, you know, you 
you do too much and then you're going to have you're going to fatigue have mental and physical fatigue so spreading that out i think uh, personally that would be my way to do it yeah i think you know, with professional trainers working with many, many dogs over this course of time. It's like real easy for a guy with one dog to overwork that dog. You know, you think about it, you're doing too much and just, you know, kind of throttle back. It makes it easier on the dog. And, and it's right on their bodies, too. You were talking about that. You could really push a dog and it just the next day you try to take it out and do this. And it just doesn't feel like it because the dog is, you know, muscles are sore, everything else. So I think, you know, that's a really great point that really try to, you know, keep it short and simple. And just build upon it and on a daily, consistent basis. Yeah, and that's when you're going to also, if you're working the dog when they are on fatigued muscles, that's when you're more likely to create strains or pulls in the in the different muscles. Because when you throw something for, I mean, these guys love, that's what they're bred for, that's what they live for is to retrieve. So if I had to have a dog that's a little bit sore and say, a, you know, hamstring or quadricep or groin muscle, and then I take a bird and I throw it out there, they're not going to self-regulate. They're going to try to get that bird as fast as they can. And that's when they're more likely to pull pull muscle or, or strain something where now we're going to have a lot longer process to recover versus giving them a day off or doing a little bit less each day where you don't reach that muscle fatigue. Very good. Very good. That's, that's, that's great to know, really, I think, from people training dogs at all levels. Carl, I want to end with this because this is a big part in the pet world. Where do you think the treat fits in to a dog's nutritional makeup? And I know Purina has treats and everything else. Is it something that you should do on a regular basis? What do you, yeah. where do you, where, where do you think? Um, I'd like to say everybody buy more treats, but um, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you know, it depends. It sort of depends on the purpose. A lot of treats are given um, for the person, not the dog. You know, it makes the person feel better, so they 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 want to they want to make their dog happy. You know, I mean, I think we all want a happy dog, and we try and and you know, training them makes us happy, and it should make them happy. You know, um, treats should make them happy and make us happy. Um, I think you know there is a real purpose for treats and training, and so we make different treats for different reasons. And I think some of the, the training treats and those are really helpful, uh, especially puppies, teaching new behaviors, teaching things, um, sit, going to create, you know, anything. Um, you know, there's dogs that are only trained on treats. That's typically not, you know, these retrievers. But um, so I think it's just looking at the reason for the treat. Is it to, to make the dog feel good, to make you feel good, or to try and teach them something? Um, I think the important thing is not to let that treat become more than like 10% of their daily calories. Um, you know, it's important for the dog to be, or puppy, to be on a complete and balanced diet. And most treats, now some are complete and balanced, but most treats are not. Um, so, you know, given to excess, um, you know, it is not a good thing. That's a great point. I think you're right. It's more for the person than it yes. is for the animal. Yeah, that's right. It makes you feel better. But, yeah. uh, you know, I gave a fluffy. It's kind of like me know, eating ice cream. Nice little makes treat. Me happy. Right? Yeah. It makes them happy. Now, the, the dental treats are, uh, I've found, we've started, I've started using them personally. And, I mean, they work really well. The dog. Are your teeth cleaner? It, yeah. It, uh, I mean, and they have, <laughs> have, have you didn't smell my minty yeah. breath on the way in? <laughs> You know, so that does serve a purpose, and I, I'd have to—I don't have the reading in front of me, like how often or how many or whatever. But you know, they play a part, and so many people ignore their dog's dental health that's, know, that's until a big, there's a that's problem. That's a great point, right? That yeah, they don't really pay attention to the dog's teeth until right there's an issue, and, and then it's very expensive yeah. to uh, to correct. So, and a lot of the there's a lot involved with dental health 
in their just their overall well-being too, and their and the way they. I mean, the bacteria you can get bacteria in the bloodstream. You can cause infection. You, I mean, you, you, nothing will make a dog feel down quicker than having something wrong in their mouth, especially from a retriever standpoint, right? That's that's what their bread and butter is is, is their mouth health and and how they can pick up objects and bring them back to you. So that's a, that's a great point. The dental health, man. This this has been fantastic. You know, y'all. I mean, y'all. I've learned a lot, and I hope the listeners have learned a lot about uh, you know not only the the different sporting dog events, but sporting dog nutrition. And I really thank y'all for being here on the DU podcast. It's been great, John. It's fun fun catching up with you and enjoyed it and thanks a lot to Perina too as well for being a you know a partner of Ducks Unlimited for so long y'all have y'all have been you know fantastic uh, really supporting our mission and uh, being real just you know a part of what we do well, that's a great organization and um, we're, we're proud of our partnership for um, I think last nine years now right it's uh, it, it's it's been fantastic and we really appreciate everything y'all do for us well thanks everybody for once again for listening to the ducks unlimited podcast and supporting wetlands and waterfowl conservation thank you for listening to the du podcast sponsored by purina pro plan the official performance dog food of ducks unlimited purina pro plan always advancing Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit ducks.org slash DU podcast. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. Ducks.